Hey everyone, Dingo here, and welcome to the Saffron Academy podcast. The objective of this podcast is to be an additional educational resource for our viewers. Saffron Finance does not endorse the viewpoints shared in these conversations, nor should this be construed as any kind of financial advice. But we are interested in giving exposure to a wide range of brilliant investors, developers, entrepreneurs, traders, and so much more. If you have an idea for a topic or a particular guest request, feel free to write into the show at dingo at saffron.finance. I hope you guys enjoy this, and I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of value this provides. Today's guest is Ben Simon, a researcher and investment associate at Mechanism Capital. In this episode, we talk about how Ben got started in the industry, his macro outlook, potential government regulations for crypto, applications for Saffron Finance in the future, and so much more. We had a great time recording this episode, and I hope you all enjoy it. Thank you. Okay, well, as you guys know, my name is Dingo, and today I'm joined with Ben Simon, a researcher and investment associate at Mechanism Capital. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Dingo. Yeah, no problem, man. I am really excited to get to you know talk a little bit more with you and kind of hear sort of your story on how you decided to pursue this sort of researching role and have this sort of like laser-like expertise and focus on different areas in DeFi and how you got into that. But before we get really into the weeds here, I think a lot of people would be kind of curious to know like what really made you start to get into crypto, I suppose. Like what was your light bulb moment? For sure. I mean, yeah, so I think I've had a, a few different light bulb moments. Um, you know, I've said this before elsewhere, but I, I first got interested in, in crypto back in late 2016, early 2017, specifically Bitcoin and Ethereum. But um, really, at that point, it was it was mostly actually like a political economic interest, almost philosophical interest in in Bitcoin specifically. You know, I think I was very uh, drawn to this idea of a permissionless censorship resistant currency, specifically with you know, these hard money qualities in, in Bitcoin. And Ethereum was interesting. It was intriguing as this concept of smart contracts or a smart contract execution platform upon which applications can be built. But that seemed very abstract and sort of removed from like what was actually necessary. And I, I didn't think there was actually much happening on Ethereum at the time. And I don't think they're actually, I don't think I was missing that much. I think I missed maybe some quality, you know, ICOs. But I think for the most part, you know, those struck me as pretty pretty scammy. And so I think, you know, the at the time, Bitcoin was really what was interesting to me. Um, I actually ended up joining, um, I would this, I, I sort of learned about crypto on my gap year and a friend of mine, um, who's now a classmate of mine in college, um, ended up starting this blockchain, broadly speaking, sort of data security startup that was using some of the threshold cryptography that other crypto systems use. Um, it wasn't really a crypto startup per se, um, but I was sort of interested enough in, in sort of blockchain and crypto that I decided to join. Um, and the startup fizzled out. We got a little bit of funding, but especially after the whole 2018 bust, uh, boom bust cycle, it sort of fizzled out. Um, and I sort of uh, lost lost interest for a couple of years after that and after the sort of, sort of bubble popped um, and then rediscovered uh, crypto, specifically Bitcoin, um, after after COVID really in lockdown in March and April of this year. And, and so that was this rediscovery. Um, I guess that whole stage, I would say, is like my really early crypto consciousness. But, but it was only in sort of May, June that I, that I sort of started looking beyond Bitcoin um, back to Ethereum and specifically to DeFi. Um, and there was, I guess, a light bulb moment. I've discussed this elsewhere, but 
I remember there was an investor formerly at Dragonfly. Um, his name is Alex Pack, and he he was talking about um, how Bitcoin is interesting, but how it's ultimately sort of insufficient for um, in, in accomplishing a lot of the ends that it, that it you know aims to accomplish in terms of decentralizing you know the financial system and and sort of making it more open and fair. Uh, not sort of having these these uh, sort of central points of failure and all this moral hazard with you know bailouts that sort of exist that sort of existed in 2008 and sort of continue to to be endemic to the the current financial system. Um, but he was saying that you know Bitcoin is great as a sort of monetary asset, and I think this is sort of a, something you'll hear from a lot of different DeFi investors. But you know Bitcoin as a monetary asset is great, but what good is it truly if it's ultimately sort of just entrenched and sort of plugged into the existing financial infrastructure? You know, there's a lot more that's that's problematic and sort of ossified in the current traditional financial system than just, you know, the monetary assets that we use, like the U.S. dollar um, or other fiat currencies. And so thinking through, you know, some of the actual trust assumptions behind, you know, centralized exchanges and, you know, other kinds of ways in which banks are sort of tethered to, for example, central bank interest interest rate policy and, and uh, you know, thinking through sort of how everything in the financial system, sort of in the traditional financial system is sort of intertwined. Um, in, in ways that are often not good, in ways that sort of create a lot of complexity, a lot of inefficiency, allow for a lot of rent seeking, um, drew me, I think, to a lot of what I ended up seeing happening in DeFi. And it wasn't just that these were ideas that were being discussed. It was, you know, these are actually products and protocols that I could use. And that to me was wild. And, you know, so as much as Ethereum was interesting to me as a sort of concept back in 2016, 2017, it really became much more tangible uh, in 2020 when I was sort of playing around with AMMs and you know got my first loan on Aave and Compound and those are really exciting. Um, it was like a those, that was a light bulb moment and I think you know I've said this also but I think there's going to be a lot more people coming in to DeFi specifically people even who people who are interested in, in Bitcoin. I think there are a lot of Bitcoiners who will never sort of give up um, just sort of this Bitcoin maximalism. But I think also you know it's it's kind of funny Bitcoin there isn't so much. Uh, there, there aren't so many new things that happen with Bitcoin. Um, there is some people that write really interesting things, but a lot of it's just, you know, maybe infrastructure building and institutional adoption, but there isn't really new experimentation happening, you know, new data, new incentives, new de- new mechanism designs, and all of that's happening in DeFi. So I think almost out of just maybe pure interest or even potentially boredom with with Bitcoin and sort of with this, this just pure monetary asset. And I think that's actually what Bitcoin ought to be. It should be sort of this unchanging, static monetary asset that's what gives it its stability and its strength um and not stability price wise because obviously it's still pretty volatile but sort of that's what gives it its lindiness its hardiness um but that's also you know i think going to push people to look for more exciting innovative you know uh features and and sort of ways in which crypto can actually um provide value to the world and i think that's you know that that's sort of what's eventually going to bring even more people into DeFi. i think it's going to be maybe through bitcoin but in part because bitcoin is just this you know, a lot of critics call it like a pet rock, and it, it is not just a pet rock, but but uh, but you know, it should really be this you know static asset. And so I think that's um, part of part of how I got into into DeFi and crypto more broadly, um, and yeah. got beyond this sort of like Bitcoin only mindset. That's a really really good answer. Um, you touched on a lot of things that are really uh, kind of salient in my own life too, and in my own experience, where it's not so much that I have a one light bulb moment it's that i just sort of have this sort of series of little like the curtain gets peeled back a little bit more and more so like for example uh i am the only person working at saffron within probably about i'd say at least probably like a 13 1400 mile radius (laughs) 
And so I have like my own office space that I rent and we ran into this issue where, and I won't say who, like what company it is, but we ran into this issue where uh, I was erroneously charged, uh, like quadruple charge for this month, for April, wow. for, yeah, for, for rent. And they clearly recognized it was an error and it was wrong. And, you know, they were working on processing the refund, but I have been waiting for like three weeks while they, they go to their IT team, which then they, their IT team has to go to their payment processor, like the, and all these like hoops and ladders to jump through. And I'm just like wanting to just shake my screen and just be like, just look at the, the ether scan transaction to find out where the money went. Yeah. And you know, there, we can find it there and get the refund process because I guess they're having issues locating, um, the the refund or wherever the refund was sent to so it's just like little things like that i think that really sort of solidify how archaic our current financial system is and i think how you know DeFi is the big real uh shining star right now in terms of like a lot of the the smartest minds and the, the most interesting people i feel like are getting behind DeFi because they're realizing the possibility of like you know how this could really fundamentally shape the future of how we do finance and how how antiquated you know the old system is i mean for god's sakes like the ach payment system you know doesn't even work on you know on weekends it's two days out of the week where it's just like it, the banks won't even process an ach payment it is totally crazy yeah i, I totally agree. isn't it like isn't it so wild and as Steve last i think on your last episode was talking about i think he was at airbnb or something and the payment system and talking about how sort of convoluted and complex things are even if they it gives off this sort of you know under under the veil of being you know very simple and elegant but in reality it's like this total mess and it's, uh like yeah and so you know i think like thinking about the, i think there are some very very clear just benefits of like DeFi and sort of the the sort of mechanisms behind it, you know, you're talking about like the transparency of the ledger and the sort of ease, uh, ease at which capital can move freely across different platforms, the programmability of all these different applications. And, you know, I think it's interesting to think like, I'm not exactly a maximalist in the sense that I think DeFi is just going to purely eat CeFi or TradFi. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't, I think there's actually some things DeFi can't do um, and things that, for example, they're still figuring out. Um, so like the most obvious thing I think is, like in a trustless system, like what DeFi aspires to be, like you, this idea, this concept of credit um, is very difficult. So, you know, I don't think anyone's fully nailed, you know, how to how to sort of provide under collateralized loans um, in a safe fashion yet. I think there are some really interesting um, projects and protocols that are that are sort of tackling this issue. Um, but this is almost like a bedrock of the traditional financial system that you trust people, not only intermediaries, but you trust your counterparty. And for that reason, you can extend them credit. And in a trustless system like like DeFi, um, which sort of which is built around these assumptions that you can't trust anyone. You have to sort of assume rational self-interest and assume, assume that any counterparty uh, or any sort of other player in the system is going to abscond with funds if it's in their rational self-interest to do so. Um, you know that that is sort of a fundamental um, difference, and I think creates almost like a, a a fundamental thing that DeFi has to sort of maybe can't do. I think maybe there actually will be solutions to that. Um, but there are sort of I think there are some limitations on what like DeFi will be eventually be able to accomplish. And I also think. You know, as much as I, I think they're just like, you can easily point to, you know, many different things that DeFi just does much better than traditional finance. I also don't think that 
the people in traditional finance are going to simply just say, okay, like DeFi is better and we're just going to you know, quit our jobs. The banks are going to close. I think more likely you're going to see like, <laughs> actually, and this is sort of something I've been thinking about recently is like, what, how, how is DeFi going to evolve over the next you know, few years? Not just in terms of the products and the product offerings, but in terms of like the ethos. So I think you're going to have people who are decentralization maximalists and sort of purists in the sense that like, you know, DeFi is, DeFi can't, we can't integrate with the, the institutions. The institutions are corrupt. You know, we don't want to see, you know, JP Morgan using compound cash chain or whatever it is. You know, that's not what we want. Uh, we want a purely decentralized system. Or you're going to see a more accommodationist um, uh, ethos and a mentality that's, you know, that says, look, they're like, you know, we think DeFi is better. But we also think that, you know, it's not the case that TradFi is just going to sort of roll over and just sort of step down and, and uh, you know, DeFi is going to replace them. And also it's the case maybe that there are some things that TradFi already does well. Um, or does does in ways that DeFi just can't do. Maybe it has to do with these trust assumptions and and credit. Maybe it has to do with other things. Um, and I think you're going to see sort of two camps emerge, and uh, sort of the accommodationists and the people that want to integrate with more traditional financial infrastructure, even maybe while reforming it and sort of gradually, incrementally improving it, versus people who want to sort of tear down the system and sort of be sort of a maximalist about decentralization. And I think you can probably tell by how I'm describing these two camps where my bias lies. And, you know, as much as I as, as much as I'm sort of ideologically committed to DeFi, I don't think that like DeFi will expand and evolve in the future by being sort of purely siloed away from traditional finance and the traditional financial world. You know, I, I, I envision a, a world in which eventually, you know, Ethereum or I think it's going to be Ethereum, um, but it could be some other sort of layer one, you know, settlement layer. Uh, but, you know, th these will be sort of plugged into not only the financial system as we know it today, but also to like a real economy of goods and services. Right, right now, DeFi is very much a self-enclosed, you know, self-referential system. Uh, you know, liquidity moves around seamlessly. It's this sort of beautiful, beautifully programmable and composable system. But at the very same time, it's not really connected to much else outside of it. It's, you know, totally self-inward facing. And I think the next real leg up for, for DeFi is, is, is going to be, you know, figuring out a way to plug in not only to the financial system um, in the, sort of the TradFi sense, um, you know, actually what banks, what banks do beyond just provide liquidity and, and you know, pro provide a way to gain leverage and to speculate, but also, you know, to, to sort of become the bedrock for, for a goods and services economy. Um, and I don't actually know if that means, you know, I think there's an interesting distinction here. Like, I think a lot of people back in 2017, 2018 wanted to take blockchain technology and sort of put everything on the blockchain. So put supply chains and put, you know, uh, electronic medical records and put all kinds of sort of random things uh, like, you know, whatever you could think of, like, you know, use use blockchain. It almost became a buzzword. And I think that's I think we've sort of evolved beyond that. I think it's clear that this technology, like let's to call it blockchain technology to use that sort of fancy buzzword that is now sort of out of fashion. That's really good for for like a lot of the financial applications. It creates this composability, but maybe like what's actually necessary for like, you know, traditional businesses in the sort of non-financial sense, you know, the ones that are providing goods and services and not is not to actually use blockchain technology on their own, but to actually just have a way to access the, a financial system that is sort of built around the efficiencies and the sort of um, seamless flows of capital that, you know, that, that are made possible by sort of, you know, having you know, Ethereum and other other blockchains. Um, so I think that's like an important distinction because it's not just like, oh, everything is going to become uh, blockchain based. It's not. I think actually a lot of things don't need the blockchain. Um, it's really that um, maybe things will plug into like financial systems um, where liquidity and capital are sort of uh, exist on on this kind of immutable, immutable ledger that is Ethereum um, that's programmable and transparent, like you were saying. Um, and 
yeah, that's so. Th I think that's an important distinction um, that I think we're. I think a lot of people are sort of on that. It's sort of. I think people have sort of accepted that now, and people and have moved away from the sort of like blockchain to everything that uh, <laughs> the blockchain integrated into everything, which is very much 2017, 2018. Yeah, well, I, I think that's something that I I've been giving a lot of thought to recently as well. I mean, ideally, in a, in a perfect scenario, we will see some sort of uh, amicable <laughs> integration of DeFi being injected into. CFI and some sort of marriage between the two, um, because I agree. I think there are certain things that the traditional finance sector does better than DeFi does at the moment. But I think there's also a ton of merit to a lot of the stuff that DeFi does that traditional finance just does not do or won't do. Um, I think the worst case scenario is that there is some sort of uh, invisible war that happens <laughs> while everyone is trying to like hang on to their own kind of grasps of uh of power and influence in their own respective sectors. For sure. But I totally agree. And I think like, you know, and this isn't to say I, I'm very much, you know, a DeFi like DeFi is what I spend all my you know, all my time, especially in crypto doing and like thinking about and and I think, you know, like this there are very clear benefits to to the infrastructure upon which DeFi is built. Um, and those whether that whether DeFi looks like it does now in five, ten years, I I don't know. And I actually don't think it will. Um, and you know, it's when, when I talk to people who are critical, who know what's going on in DeFi and are critical of it, and I have some friends who are sort of outside the system, um, but you know, maybe are, are aware of, of the different protocols and know how it works. And they often say, okay, the, the criticism is, well, what's, what is DeFi actually being used for right now? And this is going back to some of like the self-referential points. They say like DeFi really is being used for speculation. So like, why do people get loans on Aave and Compound? Well, what, what are they doing when they do that? What are people doing when they, you know, Put, like create a CDP on Maker. It's really they're they're leveraging up on their crypto so they can speculate on more crypto. And, you know what are people using Uniswap for? They're using it to trade crypto. Uh, what are you know what are people you know using synthetic asset protocols for it to trade crypto? And you know I don't think that this is necessarily wrong, but I think it is also a bit myopic because you know what could you have used Amazon for in the early days or or like Yahoo or or even Google like. It's you know Amazon was it was like wasn't it just like to sell books initially like you know yeah been in yeah. the you know if you had been um you know deep sort of in the weeds of the early days of the internet revolution you probably also would have been skeptical of the current use cases and so I think it's fair it's a fair critique to say that you know a lot of this is self referential a lot of it is used for speculative means but um or speculative ends I guess I should say um but but that's not to say that it won't remain it, that's not to say that that will always be the case yeah and I think yeah. you know it takes a lot to sort of look at the technology and say, okay, this is what the technology is. This is what it's being used for. And to be honest about that, um, I think there's also true like non-speculative usage that is actually happening right now. I mean, I know that, for example, you know, USDC um, is like Circle, the, the company behind USDC is working, has worked with the United States government to provide sort of uh, uh, like dollars to, to, to citizens of uh, countries that don't, that don't have stable currencies. Uh, so for example, I think there was an article that came out a few months ago about how you know, Circle is working with the government to uh, provide dollars to, uh, to sort of go uh, circumvent the, um, uh, the uh, I think it's in Venezuela, like the Venezuelan regime that's been, yeah. you know, inflating their currency. And that's like a, obviously a very real use case of like, you know, Ethereum and USDC. And and uh, there are, for, for, for sure, like very, very, um, there are real world use cases, real world in a sort of non-DeFi native sense. Um, but I think, you know, it's good to be honest about where things are. And I think that's what will allow us to sort of look for the next 
uh, you know, sort of the next leg of, of this sort of development and, and evolution. Yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up about, um, uh, that scenario happening with the USDC, because I've seen several, I don't want to say articles because they don't really gain that much mainstream attention. Like everyone's more, it seems like lately, everyone is more concerned about the energy consumption FUD or whatever. That seems to be the only thing that makes the headlines lately for crypto. But I have seen on more than one occasion of people, and granted, it's it's the internet, so who can really say for sure? But I don't see too much of a reason for these people to embellish so much. But they, they, they're from third world countries. I believe it actually was Venezuela where their tyrannical government has had a stranglehold on their economy and their commerce. And crypto is like literally their way to escape from that tyranny. And it, because they're not allowed, I guess, to buy into foreign markets, so they can't really buy the S&P or they can't, you know, set up a Roth IRA or something like that. Um, and they, but they have this, this escape hatch in crypto uh, that is, you know, usable around the world. And I think that that is an incredibly wonderful thing that it can help uh, people in third world countries that it doesn't really get a whole lot of uh, praise, I feel like lately, but I, I totally agree. Uh, it's, it's just interesting seeing that evolve organically. I think I, I agree for sure. I guess people who are, I would say people who are skeptical of, um, of crypto in part because it's very difficult to regulate because, you know, transactions are anonymous, even though everything is, of course, traceable on, on the Ethereum ledger and Bitcoin too. Um, but people who are skeptical that, you know, because of its anonymity, uh, it's it's difficult to regulate and they worry about, you know, North Korean government being your counterparty um, when you're trading or getting getting access to liquidity, US dollars, um, you know, trading Bitcoin, mining Bitcoin and, or the Iranian government or any sort of country that um, that the U.S. sanctions, you know, that, that is a real worry and people point that out. I guess to me, I always look at, you know, wh what you were just talking about in terms of like, um, you know, access, you know, to U.S. dollars and access to sort of financial instruments um, for people who are in developing countries, not only developing countries, but really in countries where mm -hmm. there are sort of uh, dictatorships and especially sort of dictatorships that um, sort of destabilize the currency and sort of create this economic uh, unfreedom. So like, you know, there's, you can't really have, um, a system like crypto that allows for what you were talking about, as in like this ability for anyone in the world, including if they live in a free or not free country, to access these, you know, these instruments and these applications and, and this liquidity, um, while also sort of cutting off uh, the sort of people that you don't want. It's almost like if you want the North Korean, if you want the North Korean people to have access to crypto, and you know, maybe they do, maybe they don't, I'm not sure then almost by default, you're also going to be having, you know, the, the North Korean government's also going to have access to it. And, you know, I don't know exactly, like, from a regulatory standpoint, you know, you can make the argument, well, like, you know, the U.S. government isn't just sanctioning the Iranian government, they're also sanctioning the Iranian people. So the goal is not just to prevent the Iranian government from having it. But I think, you know, like, it's, this is sort of the, um, the trade-off that comes with, with crypto. It's you can't really have your cake and eat it too. You know, you can't have this system where anyone in the world can participate it participate in it and then also say okay we don't want the bad guys or the people who we think are bad guys to be participating in it um and True. that's you know that's i think an honest trade-off that um that that exists in in crypto um and i think it scares a lot of people who are sort of worried about uh worried about maybe geopolitical problems um but i think it's actually a trade-off that makes sense uh, to make yeah i man that's a really good answer uh so I guess I know we're getting a little off topic here, but I am glad we're on this tangent too, um, because it is something that has been at the forefront of my mind for the past few weeks. And just thinking about this stuff on a macro level, um, how do you feel about any kind of like, think of the right way to phrase this. Um, how do you feel about 
just the typical sort of like worry that the government is going to intervene or at least let's let's just talk the US government um what are your thoughts on that i mean i i think regulations at some point are inevitable and maybe almost a requirement for this to really mean get the the adoption that people are looking for like if we're talking about you know half a million dollar bitcoin or something you know really crazy like that it seems to me like there needs to be some sort of you know some sort of give there a little bit but or what are your thoughts on just regulations? Is that a real kind of worry of yours going forward? Or what do you see that as? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a really good question. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I do think, you know, people have said, I know Dan from CMS said this on a, on a podcast a few weeks ago. I think he's not the only one to say this, that I think there will be some sort of exogenous shock to the system as into DeFi, particularly to like, you know, tokens and to speculation. Um, through because of regulation i don't think there's any clarity right now um i don't know exactly what that is going to look like it may actually not be so much of a shock as much of maybe just like a little bit of a of a scare um or maybe it won't even be it'll be like fully positive and and you know an endorsement of everything that's happening in DeFi and sort of a total total free reign from the government (laughs) if that happens i think obviously that you know i I don't actually think that that would be the outcome of any kind of you know government regulation i think most likely there's going to be some something that they sort of uh, clamp down on. Um, and, you know, but but how and when that will happen, I'm not sure. I do think, you know, DeFi has been growing a lot. And it's probably, if it keeps growing at this pace, um, it's going to be sort of, uh, it's not going to be an option for regulators and for politicians to just ignore it. Uh, I, I guess, though, you know, it's very possible that, that like, that regulators and, and, you know, elected officials will see what's happening um, within DeFi and you know there'll be enough of you know enough crypto advocates um, that are sort of communicating well, like sort of the potential of this technology, um, and sort of saying and sort of arguing that you should sort of look past some of maybe the more unsavory things that happen in crypto uh, in terms of you know maybe scams and, and rug pulls and all these things. Um, there is a there is a bill I think presented to the house. I don't know if it was voted on yet, but it was a bill on eighth actually um, that was presented by a few members of the house. Uh, a, a committee, yeah. a joint, actually a joint sort of commission between the CFTC and the SEC. So it's not just like the SEC is going to be coming down and you know uh, and 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 going to be doing some sort of working group and looking into crypto and DeFi. Uh, but what this is to sort of say, and I have no idea what the outcome of this working group is, like what kind of uh, regulation uh, they're going to recommend, if any. It's going to probably happen after about a year. It sounds like. Um, but I think you know, broadly speaking this is pretty good evidence that you know regulators are, are looking into um digital assets DeFi in particular we know that because a lot of uh you know because you know biden appointed president biden appointed gary gensler who is obviously a professor at mit of uh and and you know was an expert on cryptocurrency and blockchain specifically so i, I think you know for people who think you know regulation is far off and like you know gov- governments are not looking into crypto and DeFi and, and all these things, I think they're potentially in for a rude awakening um, if they think that there's just nothing that's going to happen. Um, but exactly what that looks like, I don't know. And maybe it's actually, uh, you know, maybe it's actually going to be more um, supportive as opposed to disruptive um, than other people worry. So I know that's not like a, I, I, it would be foolish for me to, to sort of speculate on what kind of regulation or, or how, the, how the government's going to end up establishing some sort of posture towards, towards DeFi and towards digital assets more broadly or crypto more broadly. Um, but I do think it's it's going to happen at some point. There will there will be some sort of guidance, um, and I don't think even if no matter how 
restrictive it is. I don't, I think, you know, part of the nature of, of, you know, this industry, and this is sort of the lifeblood of it, is that it, it can't really die because of um, government crackdown. And I certainly hope that the government doesn't, doesn't, um, I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, obviously I think this because I'm, I'm in this industry and I'm like trying to work to, to make it succeed. Um, but I truly believe that like this is, this carries like, you know, so much potential for the future of, you know, in the United States and obviously the world in general in terms of, you know, finance and, and even just sort of like open participation in these, in these systems. And so I, I, I don't think that the government is just going to shut it, shut it down. I think um, that would be probably not what's going to happen, but I don't know. That's, I think it would be a, uh, I, don't, I can't speculate, but I think you're right to be thinking about these things. And I think a lot of the people who are really deep in the weeds of these and like investing in them and building them are, are thinking pretty pretty deeply about what that's going to look like and how that's going to change change the space going forward. Yeah, I think that it's really important that we have is you know good strong voices speaking out in favor to politicians and going up the appropriate chains um, to educate some of these politicians kind of on the benefits of cryptocurrency and to look past the, you know, the negative aspects of it, which again, though, like, you know, let the currency without sin cast the first stone. I'm sure there has been countless atrocities committed using the U S dollar <laughs> that we will never know about. Exactly. But... And, and, and I think the government did a good job, like, you know, if, throughout the sort of early days of the internet and, you know, there's a lot more regulation that sort of that we've seen over the past, like five years with Facebook and Google and a lot more sort of, uh, government um, oversight and sort of, you know, maybe, I don't know about negativity, but maybe more skepticism, I would say, like coming from politicians and regulators about sort of big tech and specifically these large internet companies. But I would say like in the early days, um, you know, the the government and in, in general in the United States, like did actually, I would say did a pretty good job of, you know, facilitating innovation and allowing sort of these things to play themselves out. And I hope that they do something similar um, for like, you know, this Web3 era, as, as we like to call it. Yeah. Yeah, me too, man. I think the next few years would be really interesting. And I think you're, you're right in saying that uh, regulation or some sort of government, uh, maybe pressure is too strong of a word. But I think that stuff is, is closer around the corner than a lot of people would like to admit, um, especially at the rate that this is growing. Um, so I guess let's kind of walk back a little bit. I am so glad we had you on because uh, this I, I love this conversation topic that we've gotten onto. But I'd like to hear a little bit more of like you know how you kind of really got drawn into becoming like a researcher and doing like kind of analytical work and how you landed a, a job doing that sort of stuff. Just in case like you know there's listeners out there that are curiously interested in crypto that are looking to apply their own skill sets from maybe traditional finance or or maybe they have no background from finance and they're looking to kind of, you know, establish themselves in a new career. Like how did that journey for you sort of play out? Yeah, it's uh yeah, I guess we've had a lot of uh, we've talked about regulation and we talked about tradfi <laughs> and all these large theses that I haven't even given a proper introduction. But yeah, so, you know, um I ended up as I I guess I let, I told you a little bit about uh you know, how I got interested in in, in Bitcoin and then had this sort of uh, light bulb moment as you put it um with DeFi. But I didn't really talk about, you know, what happened after that in, in, in May, May or June of 2020. And what happened was I started diving in and, you know, I, I, I'm a would-be senior in college this year, but I decided because of online classes that I definitely didn't want to go back to school. And not only did I not want to, want to go back to school because I didn't like online classes, but, but also I was so fascinated um, and so sort of 
drawn into to DeFi and what was being built and uh, wanted to be a part of it. And, you know, whether that was researching, investing or building, you know, I, I, I wanted to sort of I wanted to dive in even deeper um, and, 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 and probably do what I thought was going to just be maybe like an internship for a year, what has ended up turning into to much more than that. And I, I guess un, it's un, unsure of whether I'm going to be going back to school next year or maybe even at all. Uh, hopefully my mom's not listening to this. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I think, I think I'm actually, yeah, I'm, I'm planning on staying. And I think this is sort of a, such a special industry that I'm planning on staying um, for, for like the foreseeable future in it. Um, as in not going back to school. Uh, but, you know, in terms of May or June, I was like thinking, how do I get in, how do I get involved in, in DeFi and crypto? And so I was, I, what I did, you know, I, I actually, it was funny. I tried um, messaging some, some funds on LinkedIn, some like crypto investment funds. Uh, it's funny. I got like zero responses from any of them. Uh, and I won't, I won't publicly shame the ones that I, that I messaged, uh, but, <laughs> but it's funny because this was, this was like an interesting, you know, if, if you want to look for a job in the traditional industry uh, or at a think tank or at, you know, financial um, firm or consulting firm or, or anything like that, you know, you email, you sort of LinkedIn reach, you know, message a recruiter, you email a recruiter, you, you send yeah. a cover letter and a resume. And it was funny because what, what ended up happening instead was I ended up, you know, reaching out on Telegram and Twitter to, to other people and got, got easy responses and had like many, many more leads for uh, jobs that way. And it was, that was sort of one of my first, uh, another sort of realization of how special this, this industry is. It's not, they're not concerned with, you know, shininess and like all the formalities of LinkedIn and and like emails and cover letters and all, all these things. It's really just like, you know, who are you? What can you contribute? How how would you think about crypto? Like how hungry are you? How you know, and and what do you bring to the table? And you know, there's a reason why a lot of a lot of the most successful traders, investors, and even builders in crypto, I mean SciKeeper are are pseudonymous. You know, it's I think there is something very special about this industry that sort of that allows allows for this like meritocracy and and really idea meritocracy uh, to flourish. Um, but so, anyways, I, I was able to get in touch with a, a few protocols and ended up also connecting with Andrew. Um, Andrew Kang's the head of head of Mechanism now. And and the funny thing is actually Andrew had written in the summer and, and spring of last year. He'd written a lot of really good threads on what he ended up calling liquidity black holes. It was his sort of thesis around AMMs in general and sort of thinking about. Rune was was or Thorchain was one of them. Bancor was another. And thinking about how these AMMs were going to sort of grow over time, and there was this cyclical liquidity pattern of um, of incentives leading to to more liquidity, leading to more trading volume, leading to more fees, leading to more leading to more liquidity, leading to and so it's like cyclical pattern of how sort of AMMs were going to be this liquidity black hole. And he sort of went pretty deep in the weeds of of these different protocols. And I found his threads totally fascinating. Um, I was just I was reading as many as I could, going back way back into his Twitter history and doing the same for, for other DeFi investors and other sort of DeFi thought leaders, I guess, for lack of a better word. And I ended up actually having some questions about one of the threads that he had written in particular about Bancor and their new, their at the time, new approach to impermanent loss mitigation. Impermanent loss, I guess, just to explain briefly what it is, um, is, you know, AMMs, meaning like Uniswap and, and Balancer, SushiSwap, uh, Bancor rely on sort of a simple pricing formula. Um, to price assets for these for for people that for users that want to exchange, and they re, they rely on liquidity providers to sort of um, to I guess provide liquidity to sort of send their their tokens into the AMM, and that liquidity is then used for traders or who want to sort of uh, buy one asset from the from the liquidity pool, meaning this AMM, and sort of sell another and sell another into it. Uh, but because these are sort of passive 
instruments. I guess actually Unisod V3 is, is more active, which is um, some, it's these, these uh, AMMs are evolving very, very quickly, but, but AMMs sort of traditionally have been pretty passive in terms of the pricing. And so they lead to um, uh, something called impermanent loss, which is where, you know, if you are providing, let's say 50% USDC and 50% uh, Ethereum and the Ethereum price triples, um, then what, if you decide to withdraw your liquidity from your, from the AMM, you're actually um, left with less Ethereum tokens than when you put in more USDC, but less Ethereum tokens. And actually you, what you withdraw is actually less as sort of in, a, in dollar terms than what you would have had if you had to actually just held 50% Ethereum and 50% USDC. And so that's sort of this, it's generally thought of as, you know, this problem. Others have argued it's sort of endemic to AMMs. It's not really going to change. It's sort of a fundamental property of them. But Bancor at the time, this is a bit of a tangent, but Bancor at the time has had come up with this new version two. Um, they're now on version 2.1, which is actually much more like version three because it's very different from version two. Um, and it was a very complex, single-sided liquidity staking AMM with really interesting properties. Um, and Andrew had written a thread about it. And I was a little bit concerned, uh, not concerned, I was a little bit confused about how, how it worked. And so I ended up just messaging Andrew um, and in the chat and we had a pretty nice sort of Twitter DM conversation. I could, you know, I actually tweeted about this uh, a couple months ago um, because I, I just, I think I love what this represents about, about crypto. And at a certain point after we had this sort of brief Twitter conversation, he's like, you know, I'm looking for, to, you know, to bring someone on to help me sort of um, do some bookkeeping and look through diligence some deals and, and sort of keep track of some projects. And, you know, I'm wondering if you're like interested in potentially like, you know, a job or a part-time role. And so we ended up talking and he ended up turning into more than just a part-time thing. And, you know, yeah. he and Daryl Lau, who has uh, also been very DeFi native and is also just a very good friend of mine, um, had just linked up and started a mechanism. And I ended up joining very soon after they started. And it all it all started because I reached out to Andrew on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I had no prior experience in crypto. All I did was uh, actually try to try to interact with him and interact on Twitter and sort of ask, try to ask interesting questions, try to understand what was going on, you know, share my own thoughts. And so I think if there's anything I take from this, not only sort of, I think the, you know, how beautiful it is for like an industry that can, can allow sort of anyone to just, you know, reach out to people like Andrew, people like Sue and other sort of, you know, these incredible developers um, and just ask questions in the Discord, or ask questions in Telegram, ask questions on Twitter and interact sort of like, with um with some of these people i mean what in what other industry can you know if, if you were to go work at uh you know bridgewater could you just like ping ray dalio and ask him a question no you couldn't <laughs> do that and obviously you know like there's there's just these layers of hierarchy that stand in the way of this and and i think crypto is much more flat um you know not only is it sort of like a, sort of an idea meritocracy but because everyone is you know working on these projects and online and you know twitter's this sort of yes it can be a cesspool at times but it's also really an amazing forum for debate and for sort of uh, interactions and, and sort of productive conversation. And so that's, that's, I guess, one thing just, you know, taking away for me, like how, how amazing the industry is, not just in terms of the technology, but in terms of the ethos. And then the other thing is like, you know, I know you asked Hasib this last time, but you know, what would you sort of, what, what I don't know if the, what the question was like, what, 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 what do you wish you would have known or what, what kind of advice would you provide to people coming into the space? And, yeah, yeah. you know, I guess to me, it's, it's like, I think being in, getting involved in some of these conversations um, is extremely important. You know, it's, it's, it's less important to, uh, I think I, I realized, you know, I was maybe using Uniswap and like maybe trading some, like some DeFi tokens and that was all good. And I was learning through that, but what I really, like the really, the way I broke into DeFi was, was not by like learning how to trade and sort of managing a portfolio on my own, but was really doing research and trying to sort of dive deep into the mechanism design and having some of these conversations on Twitter, on, in Telegram groups, on Discord, and really like 
learning as much as I could about the individual protocols. Yeah. And then and then being bold and talking to talking to people. A lot of people will have their DMs open. And so my recommendation is, you know, I think for anyone who's looking to get involved in any of these projects or, you know, looking to sort of, you know, learn more is is to do some writing and to do some thinking and and to to ask to ask questions and to you know put yourself out there. I think, you know, putting yourself out there is obviously advice that a lot of it's very easy to say, much more difficult to do. But I think it really um, is rewarded a lot more in crypto, particularly because of this open ethos and this sort of frictionless ethos, almost flat. Um, you don't even have to have, you know, you could be a, a random frog on Twitter and you can, you know, gain a <laughs> reputation as one of the best investors. You can be, you know, totally pseudonymous like Psykeeper and gain a reputation as, you know, really like a, a, a trailblazing developer and, and, you know, thought leader. And that's incredible to me. So that's, that, that would be my advice. And also just, I guess, a brief meditation on, on what I, a part of what I love about this, about this industry. I absolutely love that you brought that up. And because I, I want to seriously underline that and then really just highlight that for our listeners, because how I got involved with Saffron is literally almost the exact same way. It, it, it's, it was me basically, you know, playing around and looking at DeFi and coming across this project that I saw you know, back in November, it's like, oh my God, like these people, they're doing something that is unique to DeFi that, you know, even their competitor, like they don't have a working product yet. Like I want to be a part of this and in any capacity, I would like to be a part of this. So I, you know, and it sounds almost like ludicrous in this day and age where we have this old system that, you know, like you said, you got to find a recruiter, you got to get a cover letter, you got to get all this resume stuff done. But I literally just, you know, cold called, um, Psykeeper in the beginning, like right when the project was getting started, I said, Hey, you know, I see extreme amounts of value in this. Here is my background. You know, here's what I've done, um, you know, in marketing. Here's what I've done in video production. Here's what I can offer to the table. You know, I will work for free. Like, just I want to be involved in this. And, um, you know, he gave me a shot and it started out like kind of as a part time thing. Then it changed to a full time thing. And uh, in the end, you know, it both, it, benefited both of us massively and uh you know it, it it's really important to kind of highlight that i think that you know this industry that is developing is needing people from all different kinds of walks of life and all different sort of you know professions whether it be more analytical people uh whether it be marketing people sales people you know video production people uh people that speak well in front of a camera people that know foreign markets well translators like it, it's we're building up this new system and you know, we, we need bodies for it. And I think that, you know, if you, and I have people that kind of approach me, you know, in my day-to-day -day life and that ask me, you know, how do I get involved with this, some of this stuff? And it's, it's kind of just like really like simple when you narrow it down, it's just, you start kind of putting yourself out there. Like you were saying, like kind of start making those, those, sure. those efforts. So I totally agree. And I think also it breeds this virtuous cycle of, you know, people feeling like the way they got into the industry, like us is, you know, in part, just cold reaching out to, you know, some of the industry leaders, people who are working on interesting projects, who are investing and thinking deeply about the protocols. And, and what that does is it creates this, you know, this flywheel effect where the people, where people feel grateful um, for like, you know, having these opportunities. You know, I personally feel like I want to pay this kind of thing forward. You know, Andrew took a chance on me. Andrew sort of was open to my DMs and to my, maybe, maybe they were naive questions. I, I tried to make them good questions, but, you know, to him, they were probably like relatively simple, simple <laughs> questions about how AMMs work. Um, but he was patient and, you know, others that I've 
spoken with um, in, uh, in in crypt, in crypto, like across DeFi, you know, have, have sort of shown that same kind of patience and willingness to help. And I think, you know, what that does is it breeds this like, you know, very, you know, virtuous cycle of also wanting to pay that forward. And so as, as much as I can, you know, if anyone's listening and, you know, wants guidance, you know, I, I can't necessarily respond to hundreds of people and help hundreds of people. But, you know, as, as much as I can, I'd like to sort of pay that forward. And it's like one of the things I, I sort of want to, it's one of the, the main, you know, things I want to have done but as sort of before I leave crypto is to sort of pay that, pay that forward and help other people get involved. And I think you're totally right. There's such a, there's such a, um, a, a lack and scarcity of, of talent, especially with the amount of capital that's flowing into it and the sort of, and the, and the sort of, I don't know, all the eyes on the space and on, on crypto in general, there's, there's like the talent that's coming in is much, is much slower, yeah. frankly, and that creates amazing opportunities for people who want to get involved now. Um, it's really, uh, you know, I actually just, this is like a brief sort of story. I had, I had a friend of mine, um, when I was at Stanford uh, as like a freshman and I got there, he was a graduate student in, in, in economics. He's a really brilliant guy. And he told me like, you know, you're living in this incredible era. Like, you know, you're at Stanford, you're in Silicon Valley, um, in the sort of 21st century, it's like really cutting edge. And like, you look, look at the people around you, look at what they're working on in terms of like AI and you know, all, all these, all this different sort of like machine learning research and, and sort of uh, bioengineering research, all these things. And like, this is really like a historical moment for you. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. And then, but I didn't really feel it because a lot of the people that I knew were going to work at Facebook in the summer, were maybe starting these like, you know, social media startups that were just, you know, it was going to be like a dorm party app or something. It didn't really <laughs> seem so, uh, it didn't actually feel revolutionary in the way that sort of my friend was saying that I should be, that I should sort of feel that it was. Yeah. It really only, I think I understood what he was saying um, when I really got interested in, in, in crypto and sort of dove in this year. I think, you know, this actually is, I think it's, you know, this really is the frontier of, of, you know, like experimentation and innovation. And, you know, there are other really cool industries, but like what better, uh, you know, th this really is, you know, I, I mean, I know I'm sort of preaching to the choir to you and I'm sure to all the listeners here, <laughs> but, but like, you know, it was, it was so, uh, it was, that was like another, I guess, light bulb moment. It was like, you know, this is exactly the feeling that I think a lot of the people who are probably, you know, dropping out of school and like going living on couches and couch surfing in Silicon Valley in the you know, 90s and 2000s. That's what it was like. And I think that's, you know, Silicon Valley has lost a lot of that ethos. And I think, you know, obviously they still do a lot of great investing, a lot of great projects that come out of it, but it's become much more institutionalized and much, much more established. And I think there are other places and where, where that ethos lives on. And I think the, the primary place that lives on is, is crypto. Yeah. I, I really love that you highlighted that the the altruistic um, sense sort of behind or sentiment behind some of that stuff and just wanting to kind of pay it forward. I, I feel the exact same. And I think that, you know, it says a lot about you as a person. And I think that's a really great thing to have. I appreciate that. So going forward, you know, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with Saffron Finance and kind of what maybe drew you, drew your interest into the protocol? Yeah, of course. I know you mentioned, you know, you got interested in Saffron because this was like an early stage company that actually developed, delivered a product, didn't really have so many competitors. And, you know, I think when I saw Saffron initially too, um, and really dug into the architecture, like I was drawn to it for a few reasons. You know, I think, I think Hasib did a really good job outlining the sort of broad thesis around um, sort of the, the market that Saffron, like the, the, like the total addressable market for Saffron, which is obviously massive. Um, I mean, in terms of just like risk tranching in general, and he, I think, because he did a really like good job laying out sort of the case for why you know, Saffron could grow and could continue to sort of um, expand in really incredible ways. 
Um, but sort of to get even maybe even more in the weeds about like what Saffron can do now in DeFi specifically, um, you know, I, I think there was a problem that I've, I've seen with other sort of risk mitigation protocols, namely like insurance protocols, which is that there's this, which is that a lot of the protocols that are insured across DeFi actually aren't, aren't as risky. Um, so which is to say that, you know, if you go on Nexus Mutual, certainly there is like, I think a whole sp- a spectrum and Nexus is just one example. I think maybe one of the, the sort of industry leaders right now, but there's a whole spectrum of of projects that you can buy insurance for, um, whether it's Compound or Curve, um, and there are other smaller ones, maybe less established. But ultimately, any of these insurance protocols have to underwrite the insurance. And so that means that the the mutual members um, or the people who are providing cover have to basically approve uh, you know, the protocol. And so what that means is they're not going to want to provide insurance to the most risky DeFi protocols. And you know, if we know anything about DeFi and new protocols that pop up is that a lot of them have you know, smart contract risks, uh, you know, economic risks through flashlight attacks and other things like that. And A, not only are all, are all those risks not covered by traditional insurance protocols, but B, there's this incentive problem, which is that insurers are not going to want to insure uh, risky protocols because that's right. that they're the ones who suffer if the, if the protocols get hacked. And so that's that's just sort of a fundamental problem, I think, with um, with I guess this model and how and how it's sort of provided in DeFi. And so what, one of the things that appealed to me about Saffron was thinking through how the architecture and the incentives around the sort of risk mitigation differ. For Saffron, you can create sort of a pool or sort of this tranched risk, you know, senior junior tranche for any protocol. It could be safe, like or like I think have like a reputation for being very safe. And I think like Compound Finance, for example, which is the, of course, the first protocol that Saffron integrated with, I think does have that kind of reputation. Um, but it doesn't have to be just for those. It could, you could have a Saffron pool for any single protocol in DeFi, including the most risky ones, because what you're doing is you're isolating risk and you're saying, okay, the people that want to that want to participate in this protocol and that want to you know provide liquidity or they want to use it, they can do so and lever up on that usage and in doing so provide um, insurance in a way and cover in a way to the senior users, the people who want to use the protocol but don't want, but are maybe more risk averse, maybe want to uh, sort of dampen some of the rewards in in return for for gaining some extra assurance that they'll get paid out in the event of a hack. And so to me, that's like a, a really, like that's a fundamental improvement or at least difference um, from a lot of the other insurance primitives. And, you know, Hasib generally talked about how how that works in in um, traditional finance, and there's a lot of other things you can do with risk tranching, um, as opposed to just insurance. I mean, tranching can can you know uh, you could have like fixed income for for the senior tranche, and I, I know that Sidekeeper's working on that for version two. Um, but sort of this this fundamental innovation of like allowing not just the the safe protocols to be insured, because at the end of the day, do we really need the safe protocols to be insured as much as new new risky protocols? Well, we do want insurance for safe protocols too, because everything you know n- there's nothing that can be 100% safe on its own. Um, but really like we want for, for these risky protocols. Um, and so to me, that was this sort of, uh, insight, I guess, another, I guess, frankly, light bulb moment was what drew me to Saffron. And frankly, like, I think we've seen a good amount of usage to, on Saffron, like so far. Um, but I've always had this thesis that Saffron's real value is going to be for these long tail protocols as it were. So, you know, Uniswap and AMMs have, have, you know, I think generally done a really great job of, of, um, becoming super liquid and, and usable for for large assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum. But their original value proposition was for long tail assets and to provide liquidity for long tail assets that you couldn't really get in the central limit order book um, model. And I think that's always going to be the case, regardless of whether a- AMMs like Uniswap and SushiSwap and, and their competitors, um, whether they remain the sort of go-to option for like 
for 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 the big assets, they're always going to have that sort of long tail asset use case. And I think the same thing is going to be true of Saffron. I think Saffron starting off with like sort of the safest protocols, but as it sort of expands to these more risky protocols, I think the usage is going to be uh, the use case is going to be much more apparent. Um, and so that's you know because if we think about it, actually like you know, if we're being honest with what Saffron is and any kind of risk mitigation pr- protocol that, that tranches risk for DeFi and usage, um, there actually is additional attack surface by using something like Saffron. And so, you know, if you want to use Compound um, and that like you can use Compound alone and then you have only the risk of using Compound. But if you want to use Compound plus Saffron, you have the risk of Compound and then also the code risk of Saffron. And of course, Saffron is supposed to mitigate that risk if in case anything happens with compound. Um, but it's also the case that, you know, users may not want to take on additional sort of, there's there's more attack service when there's more code to be working with. And so it doesn't surprise me that, for example, um, with very safe or like sort of purportedly safe, I think generally are safe protocols like compound and sort of other sort of uh, DeFi blue chips, um, people may not want to sort of take on the additional attack service of integrating, of like using Saffron pools, which then plug into those protocols. But I think that 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 extra additional risk, and frankly, I don't think it's necessarily a risk in the sense that you know Saffron is unsafe. It's just risk in the sort of very simplistic sense that there's more code. Um, there's sort of more attack surface by virtue of there being more code. Um, but I think that that becomes a lot more palatable uh, when you're sort of when Saffron is built on top of and sort of plugged into these other risky protocols. So that's what initially drew me to it, and you know this that was sort of my early thinking around it, and that's I think. I've, I've sort of evolved a little bit in terms of thinking through some of how the pools can be built. Maybe you can sort of uh, combine different assets together. Maybe you can create different tiers of, of assets depending on their risk levels. And so it's been really fun to think through with SciKeeper. I think SciKeeper is extremely forward thinking and, and innovative. And it's been really fun also to think with other investors and sort of people who are looking into Saffron in, this, in, in crypto. And I think a lot of people are excited about it um, and excited for what this, for what this can be. Um, and you know, I decided to to get to get involved in part in part because I was so excited by sort of the opportunities for this, not just the sort of broad idea of risk tranching and sort of what this can be in the future down the line, um, but even just like the the very basic needs in in DeFi today. Like when when a new farm launches or a new protocol launches, I feel worried about investing in it or or using it um, because I'm worried about hack. So I, I'd love to have a protocol that I can use like Saffron, and I think that's that's what drew me to it initially, and it's. You know, I'm really excited for for you know to see how SciKeeper and the rest of the team um, you know develops that idea even further over the coming months and years. Yeah, it, it's it, it's such a you know I don't want to sound like a shill, but like I, I feel uh, humbled every time we have our group meetings. The developers are so in, incredibly intelligent, and the, like again, SciKeeper is such a forward thinking guy, and he's just like solving these problems that haven't even come up yet. It, it, it's really incredible and, and humbling to watch them all work. Um, and I think it's just really interesting too, is like as as long of a time as because we've been around almost seven months now. Um and you know, as as long of a time as that is in crypto, like in terms of our timeline for Saffron, like we're just just getting started. And it's 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 gonna be such an exciting year and it's gonna be such an exciting, you know, decade moving forward with all this stuff as everything starts to evolve and everything starts to, you know, iterate on itself. Yeah. And and I think I I totally agree. And, you know, I think, well, I think to me, like, if I look at what I am, I envision Saffron to be and, you know, what I hope it is, at least, you know, and I think this is potentially achievable. I mean, again, this is, I guess I, I should say, since we're talking about specific protocols, like none of this is an investment advice from right. my end. Yes. All those caveats, yeah. like this is, uh, I'm just 
thinking about the mechanism and I get excited about thinking through sort of innovative and really exciting uh, new DeFi primitives. I think Saffron is one of them. But what I sort of envision, you know, this like a long term what Saffron can be is, you know, basically new protocols as they launch will launch with Saffron pools. And it'll be so easy to spin up sort of a risk, uh, sort of junior and senior tranche for individual protocols that instead of just farming straight straight into sort of these new and like providing you know liquidity into and using these very very new protocols and like you know not just sort of like compound and ave and cream and and sort of you know lending borrowing protocols like that and then also amms but also just like the new ones i imagine like my my hope for the future is that there's going to be you know some sort of ability to use saffron with you know new products and i think that's going to allow um, for a lot more safe experimentation, I would say, and maybe hopefully less rug pulls. I think that would be like a net positive for the space. If I guess it wouldn't yeah. mean necessarily less rug pulls, but it would mean rug pulls that you know investors who want to take the risk of rug pull and sort of hack or just you know whatever kind of other risk there are with the risk there is with these early protocols. There will be investors who want to take those risks and will be rewarded if those risks never actually uh, end up be turning into hacks or, or problems. Um, but that will that will also allow for people who are risk averse to participate. And I think there is really a problem right now that you know risk averse um, DeFi users don't really want to participate in new protocols that aren't audited or that even if they are audited are still new. And I think Saffron can do a lot to help alleviate a lot of those concerns. Yeah, I, I think that's a it's a very fair assessment of uh, what our sort of long term goals are. Um, is there anything else like that is on your radar? Because I don't want to just you know, focus on Saffron. Is there anything else that is on your radar that you maybe haven't talked about recently? It seems like you're already pretty uh, bullish on Ethereum winning that, you know, that race, that arms race. And actually, since that Hasib episode, I've kind of changed my stance as well because Hasib was like really, really bullish on Ethereum. Uh, ended up winning out against, you know, Cardano and, and Avalanche and all that sort of stuff. I mean, are there any other, you know, protocols like that that you're kind of looking at? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's this is the question to be thinking about. And, you know, I I, I like to, um, I think being a generalist in crypto is really difficult. And the people who are and do that well, I admire them deeply. <laughs> I think for me, what I've tried to do is to sort of dive really deeply into specific areas, specific verticals. So that was, you know, that was maybe risk tranching as, as one of them, you know, looking into Saffron and thinking through like a thesis and how, how Saffron can grow. Obviously, also AMMs, you know, that was the my first love in, in crypto. Uh, and that's you know how I got involved with Andrew and mechanism, um, algorithmic stablecoins. But really, it was was a, was another sort of recent um, deep dive area for me. And then most recently, though, is like what you're talking about now, like you know competing layer ones, Ethereum. This isn't, of course, DeFi specific. This is sort of DeFi inclusive, but not just DeFi. Um, but you know, I've been thinking a lot about scaling and this problem. There really is like a crisis right now facing Ethereum. Um, you know, it's 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 really prohibitive for a lot of people to, to use the network. And I think it's easy, even on Twitter, actually, and, and just generally in, in like uh, DeFi conversations and chat rooms, like the people who have the most money and the people who are most successful are the ones who are the loudest and take up the most room. So I don't think we actually fully understand the scope of the problem. And a lot of people have been leaving Ethereum or even just not even coming onto Ethereum because of the high, the high gas fees, um, especially when they're alternatives. And so I think to me, like, yeah. we're really in this sort of, best of times, worst of times uh, moment for Ethereum, where like we see DeFi exploding and like all this incredible innovation and usage. And yet at the same time, it's it's like really, uh, there's like this gentrification of the network. And so it's it's like an open question how that's going to um, sort of resolve itself. And so I've been, 
I've been looking mostly into rollups, and I think you know ETH two is also potentially on the horizon. Um, but I think rollups, specifically optimistic rollups and zk rollups too, um, but really optimistic rollups in the near term is 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 uh, as a concept and generally also like the specific protocols. Um, you know, these are something I'm really really interested in, and I think also like very bullish on. Uh, I guess not just not really necessarily from an investment perspective, but I mean yes, from potentially from that, but also really just from sort of uh, thinking through the potential they ha- they hold for Ethereum to to scale. Uh, you know, I'm happy to go into a little bit about that, but um, I think I think people I think people who have been around crypto for a while, and you know, I have I'm definitely not one of those necessarily. There have been people who've been in you know been in Ethereum since you know Vitalik started writing uh, you know the white paper or the yellow paper, whatever it was. Um, but but people who have been you know using these applications and sort of thinking about Ethereum and, and crypto for a while are sort of maybe a little bit disillusioned with the whole Ethereum is going to scale narrative. You know, we've heard it before. We've, we're we're going to hear it again. Like oh, like you know, it's never going to happen. Um, but I actually think that like if you look, and I think I was actually one of those people. Like even having just sort of come into this coming into coming into this sort of DeFi ecosystem, you know, in May or June of last year, I, I sort of got accustomed to that kind of you know. Uh, maybe jaded mentality of like, oh, like Ethereum's not going to scale. Like, you know, we're just going to have to look at other chains, or this is just a problem that's it's sort of not going to not that's sort of fundamental. Um, and I think if you look really closely, though, there's actually very good reasons why previous scaling solutions um, like side channels, Plasma, other attempts have have actually not worked. And I think um, there are very good reasons why why rollups um, are going to work this time. And so I think um, it's actually something that. If you look more closely into as as I have, I mean, I don't know if, if I'm right. I will happily admit to being wrong about this if this isn't the case. But I think long term, you know, I'm I'm really excited about the potential that rollups have, um, you know, to help Ethereum scale. And you know, I don't know exactly. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know exactly. Like, I can't predict the future. I don't even the, the near term. I'm not sure what that looks like. Um, but you know, this is this is I think. Uh, this is to me like the elephant in the room right now. You know, there are really interesting new DeFi protocols that are ha- that are sort of being spun up. There are new primitives. There's good marginal improvements over the things that currently exist. But if you're looking to solve a problem in DeFi, it's this, and crypto more broadly, it's this scaling problem on Ethereum. And actually, I'd say there's actually two problems. There's there's like you know two problems that really need solving. Um, this one, the scaling problem, and in general, also um, thinking through the usability of of DeFi. I think you know. Like I've I uh, had this interaction with my dad's fr- uh, friend who lives down the street from us in or my from my family's house, and he's was like a sort of a retired professor of, of accounting, and he he he's been interested in crypto for a while and has gotten interested in DeFi recently, and he told me he wanted to use Yearn to get to get yield, and I was like, hey, great. So he told me like, how do I send my Bitcoin to Yearn? And when he texted me oh, that, right. I had, almost had a heart attack because if you send your Bitcoin yeah. to an Ethereum address, you're going to lose your Bitcoin. It's not, it's not going to be good. Whatever happens, it's not going to be good. It's just, you're going to have no access. So I almost got a heart attack um, about yeah. like, not, not actually, but it, it, but it was also sort of an eye, eye opening. Again, another one of these light bulb moments that like, you know, the levels of, of sort of complexity uh, in DeFi and sort of using a lot of DeFi are, are uh, really um, thick, I guess, these, these layers of complexity. And it's going to be really difficult to sort of onboard you know, the next million or 2 million people. I mean, the first couple million that are in DeFi now, you know, maybe they know MetaMask and they know Etherscan like the back of their hands. Like, you know, I think maybe both of us do and other people who are listening to this, but 
like another elephant in the room is like the usability here. Um, like, or do we really envision this a world where MetaMask is going to be, everyone is going to be using MetaMask and sort of dealing in 40 byte, you know, addresses and, and like dealing with failed transactions and gas fees and looking at what the non service specific transaction is and tracing, you know, no, I, I don't think so. I think, you know, there will be people who are always going to be on the sort of lower level of this lower level of sort of an, on the sort of in, in terms of like thinking through the, uh, the complexities and, and dealing with the actual protocols themselves. But there needs to be a lot, a, a lot, um, a lot of improvement, I think, in the usability of these, if we're going to see a lot, a lot more um, usage and adoption of, of DeFi. So those are the sort of two main growth areas I, I'm looking at and, and thinking through. So like scaling and then usability. Um, I think a lot of the infrastructure, while it's going to improve and, you know, a lot of the, the primitives that are being built, I think they're, they maybe you know, Maybe Uniswap won't be here in 10 years. Maybe, you know, Aave and Compound won't be here in 10 years. I don't know. Um, but to me, they work very well. Um, and I think, you know, there, there are going to be marginal improvements um, that are made, you know, with other protocols that are competing against them and also sort of in these protocols themselves. But a lot of the the sort of the, the biggest growth areas are not in just building protocols now, but they're actually sort of thinking through some of the actual, the problems that plague DeFi and crypto as a whole. So scaling and then also just thinking about how the usability improves. So those are, I guess, my broad, my, my sort of the two things I've been thinking a lot about um, more recently, um, you know, maybe at a sort of a different level of abstraction than the specific protocols that that um, I've been diving into. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a really empathetic take that, um, and it, it's easy for me, and I'm sure you feel the same way, to lose sight of like just how expensive it is to like really transact on Uniswap now with gas fees, because I remember not that long ago, you know, trading, you know, converting Ethereum into, you know, another you know, ERC-20 token costs like 10 bucks, five bucks. Now it's like a hundred dollars <laughs> or like 50. And that, that's got to be super prohibited to people or prohibitive to people who are, you know, joining with not a lot of capital and just are trying to get fair what this whole, you know, DeFi stuff is about. And and I think that's, uh, that's the thing that fascinates me. One of the, the biggest things that fascinates me about you know the the current goings on in crypto and DeFi as a whole is just this whole, you know, how is Ethereum going to solve the scaling problem? And you know, hearing you talking about rollups and then hearing Asib talk about his own you know thoughts on you know who's going to win that proverbial arms race. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's I, I kind of agree that it's it's going to be Ethereum. It's just it's, I'm interested to see how it all ends up shaking out. Yeah, likewise, and I you know I'm. I'm hopeful that Ethereum will figure out a way to scale. I think like there are some really, you know, the deeper I dive, actually, the more the more excited I get. It's actually not the opposite. I was thinking, you know, as I started this sort of deep dive into rollups and into thinking about a little, you know, I, I really have been looking more into rollups than ETH2, but I think, you know, a lot of the sort of sharding innovation that's going to come from ETH2 is also really important because what rollups do is they put, you know, data computation off chain and they keep the data on chain, um, which allows sort of, you know, it's almost, I, I would like to, I sort of describe rollups as like Ethereum scrap paper. So if you were like handed like a bunch of long division problems to do, and you were told to sort of do out all of the long division on one piece of paper and like, you know, show all of your work and then hand that into your teacher, you'd only be able to fit a couple problems in versus if you were able to have scrap paper and sort of do the problems on a different sheet of scrap paper and then put the answers on the, on only the answers, you'd be able to fit a lot more in. And so that's how I think of what rollups allow for. Um, they sort of put the computation, like the actual smart contract execution off chain, they keep the data on chain, but that still runs into a problem, which is that, well, you can, you're still limited by the amount of data that you can fit on chain. And that's where the sharding comes in with ETH2. So I think ETH2, um, like this sort of sharding mechanism um, that, that, that Vitalik and others are working on in sort of plus rollups together is going to, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly 
if the theoretical limits on that are are any any stronger than the theoretical limits on on more centralized systems, they might be just as good. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a really interesting, uh, really, really interesting arms race. I like the way you put it, and um, you know, it's exciting to invest in, and and I'm hoping that you know, I, I think the next few months will be really interesting um, to see you know to see how this all plays out. Yeah, uh, I think we're gonna go ahead. It looks like we've gone over time a little bit here, but man, you have been such an interesting person to have on and talk to. I would love to have you back on at some point. We can kind of go more in depth. Um, I, I'd like to show a little bit for uh, uh, Jason Choi's podcast where you actually you were on and you talk about um, algorithmic stable coins uh, and also like incredibly interesting. Listen, he's got a two parter series. I think it runs about an hour and a half, but you can find that on uh, Block Crunch. I would definitely recommend people who are you know want to hear more of Ben and want to kind of find out more about um, some of the more intricate stuff to check out that series as well. Uh, where can people find you online, and what's your social profile look like? Yeah, thanks, Dingo. It's well. First of all, it's been such a pleasure to to be here, and I'd love to continue this conversation both offline and maybe maybe another time here. Um, but yeah, so you can find me um, on Twitter at Benjamin Simon ninety seven, and you can also find me on Telegram. I'm on telegram uh, all the time like 24 6 because uh i'm a religious jew so i observe shabbat so uh, i can't i'm not on there on shabbat which is saturday like friday friday evening to saturday evening but basically the rest of the time that i'm not sleeping i'm on telegram so you can find me there on my you know dms on twitter are open so uh yeah benjamin simon 97 on twitter and on telegram awesome ben thank you so much again i really appreciate you taking the time out to come uh visit with us and chat thanks so much dingo Thank you.